Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey folks, Oliver here. This week, I'm sharing a conversation that I recorded with Horace for The Critical Path, his other podcast. As you may know, I'm a big fan of Helium and what the team there are trying to build because of what it will enable for connected micromobility. I've long wanted to connect Horace and Amir up, and as it turns out, Amir was a fan of Horace's work from way back, and it led to a great discussion. Hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. In the meantime, the next Micromobility America conference is now scheduled for the 23rd of September. It'll be at Pier 70 in San Francisco and have more than 50 top speakers from the industry, more than a thousand global participants and hundreds of startups and brands represented. If you love this space and want to find your tribe here, head to micromobility.io to find out more details. And now, here's Horace and Amir. Let's go. All right. Hey, and welcome everyone to The Critical Path. I am Oliver Bruce, the host of the Micromobility Podcast with Horace, stepping in today for Judd and to talk to both Amir and Horace today. So I thought maybe uh, we'll give you both a chance to introduce yourselves, but I'm very excited for this conversation about Helium and what it's doing. So maybe, oh, hey, Horace, how are you? Hey, nice to have you back on this show. Yeah, thank you. Lovely to be back. Yeah, thanks for inviting Amir. And so, Amir, if you could introduce yourself as well. Yeah, happy to. Thanks for for having me back also. I am the founder of Helium, which is, I think, what we're going to talk about for most of the next hour. Before that, I spent a lot of time in the video game industry where I both as a as sort of esports, I don't know if athlete is the right term, it sounds stupid, but an, an esports athlete. And then after that, a developer of video games and spent a lot of time in that industry, started Helium about eight years ago, actually about to come up on our eighth birthday, 10 days from now. So I've been in the in the Helium tel- and the telecom universe now for the better part of the last decade, but very much, very much a newcomer before that. Tell us about Helium. And although it's an eight-year-old story, it sounds like it's a very much a, a new thing for a lot of people because it's just burst onto the scene. So, so how did we get to where we are and what's the story of Helium? Yeah, so it is a long story. Only the last few years really matter that much, if I'm honest. But the, the old years are certainly interesting. And the Genesis story is important just because I think it sort of guided us to where we are. And I met Sean Fanning, the, the old Napster founder, if you guys will remember. The old people will remember Napster. Uh, we're, we're old. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he and I had met through the video game universe somehow and got to talking about building a sensor network, basically, right? Like, how would you build a wireless network designed for sensors? At that time, this is probably 2012, like people were talking about IoT, which is the internet of things for, for those that, that surely, surely everyone knows by now, but just in case. And the problem that we saw was that there wasn't really a wireless network designed for IoT things. Like that was so just sort of seemed obvious to us, right? Like how would you power, you remember that movie Twister where there was like 
tornadoes all over and there was a scene where they like fight they like just like unleash all these sensors and they go up into the tornado and like that's how they they sort of figure out what the tornado is doing it's like that's sort of what was in our head was like that there should be like these sensors everywhere and they should be small and like they're probably going to be battery powered for the most part and if they were just sort of to proliferate this way like they couldn't run on an existing cellular network and wi-fi certainly wouldn't work for like a whole bunch of reasons including power consumption but also including like credentials and like onboarding and all that kind of stuff and the same for bluetooth right like people have tried this sort of like mesh of phone kind of approach a bunch of times and so that was just sort of our feeling was like we didn't really know what the hell we were talking about or what we were doing but it, it seemed kind of obvious to us that like that there had to be a different kind of network to solve that problem we started helium in 2013 trying to solve that problem. Because we didn't know what we were doing, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out the right way to solve that. And we had various ideas around around what would work and what wouldn't. I would skip like a four-year chunk in the middle, basically, and just sort of jump to like 2017 at some point. At least for me, I read a white paper for a project called Filecoin, which was the first time that I had really spent any time getting interested in blockchain projects, which in hindsight is sort of was a mistake. But that was the first time where I'd seen you know, Filecoin, for those that don't know, is is this sort of file storage cryptocurrency network. There's underneath it a, a file storage protocol called IPFS. And Filecoin was a way to incentivize people to store files on IPFS, effectively, to make this network work. And that was the first time that I had seen a cryptocurrency or a blockchain network that was trying to sort of do a very pointed thing, right? Like it wasn't just trying to be money. And I'm not saying that Filecoin was the first, it was just the first that I paid attention to. And, and they they had a very detailed plan and a very complicated like set of algorithms that would sort of reward people for bootstrapping the network, right? Because I think that is the problem with all of these things, right? It's like, how do you, how do you create a, a massive file storage network if there isn't a massive amount of file storage available, right? And they built this network to incentivize that, that behavior instead of just, you know, mining with electricity like Bitcoin. And that was the moment when we started to look at, okay, well, could we do the same thing? Like, could we incentivize the creation of a wireless network by incentivizing people to create a wireless network before there was any traffic on it? And so we, you know, we spent a bunch of time like trying to sort of theorize and scheme around this. And many developments later launched the network in the middle of 2019. So it was, it was in August. The sort of secret sauce of Helium was really that we solved a bunch of things at once. Like we made it very user friendly or consumer friendly to install an IoT gateway and a cryptocurrency mining device. And then we also came up with a clever way to incentivize people to build the network, you know, in the same way that Filecoin did to, to sort of build the coverage side of the network first. And that has always been the hard part in IoT networks for a bunch of like economic reasons. And we can get into that a little bit. But that's, you know, that's really what Helium has always been about. It's like, how do we how do we build this like ultra low cost, very pervasive, ubiquitous wireless network designed for sensors? That was our Genesis mission. And I think we kind of figured out finally how to do it with the cryptocurrency approach that we're using now. Mm. I think that if I may jump in here, that the reason you, I actually think I came across you back when Fred Wilson had originally announced that the USV had gone in, in your round in maybe 2018? 18, 20, yeah. 2018? 18. Yeah. And, and, and I thought the reason that it was, it was at a time when Horace and I were in the early days of our micromobility journey and we were looking at how do vehicles connect to the internet? Because that's a kind of, the connectivity question is a really important one as we think about micromobility. And even today, most e-bikes that are sold or personally owned e-scooters that are sold don't have any connectivity to them. And as I kind of learned more and back into that project, I was like, the reason is that it's too expensive to do it on cellular, the battery life sucks, all these other sort of things. And you have to try and configure into every market that you go into. 
And so when I came across what you were doing, it was like, wow, with really low cost and low data, there's actually a huge amount of potential here for micromobility in the sense of, you know, and you talk to e-bike manufacturers or last night I was talking to a very big e-bike manufacturer in Europe who I will connect you to after this call, who was like, yeah, look, we've been trying to work out a solution here, but we've just never, it's super hard to configure in every market. It gets expensive. We don't want to have to pay the data, you know, and the customers kind of only half of them will opt in if they have to pay lots for the data and you know, all that sort of functionality. So the thing that's been super exciting for me has just been watching how quickly the network has gone from like when you launched in Austin with a couple of miners to, you know, now when you're at, I don't know, the counts at like 37,000 or 38,000, depending on the morning of coverage. So like what, you know, you've gone and clearly solved the, hey, we can build coverage. You know, what's the time frame that you reckon that you'll get to in terms of being able to provide coverage? And then with that technology for low railway and just, just provide a bit of detail about what that looks like, you know, what's the capability of that? You know, so the, the hotspot growth, like I said, the thing that I think was magic was that we built this sort of consumer device that was a crypto miner and a wireless access point. And either of those things on their own, typically very unfriendly process, right? Like if you want to try and set up an IoT gateway, you're in the command line somewhere, you know, you're SSHing into a box and you're using a 48 volt power supply or something, you know, it's like not ever designed for consumers, right? Like it's a telco focused kind of product space. And so, yeah, we, we sort of built and designed, there's nothing complicated about it from a hardware point of view, but the making it easy to use was the magic. And we hear through the supply chain that the number of units sold is in the hundreds of thousands, like the high hundreds of thousands now. So the fact that you see, you know, 38,000 on the map or whatever the number is today, is you know at best a tenth of what we expect to be on the network through the rest of the year and really the situation with covid and sort of chip shortages and stuff like that has really crushed the sort of growth of the network to some degree like the demand is extremely high but the ability for the vendors in the space because we don't make the make the hotspots uh the ability for the vendors in the space to actually deliver them is 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 tricky um, so that's gone really, really well. And I think that we, we sort of cracked that one pr pretty well. I'm, I'm really sort of happy with how that's gone. LoRaWAN is, is kind of an interesting technology. So it was sort of developed by this small French company called Ciclio and, and then acquired by a company in the States called Semtech. Um, and it's, you know, they, they took an interesting approach on how to do very low power, low data rate uh, wireless. And so typically that space is... is I'm just sort of filling in blanks for people that don't know, but that, that's typically called the LP WAN space. So this sort of low power wide area networking. And there's been a bunch of different technologies and attempts to solve these kinds of problems over the years. And LoRa is just sort of another one of them, right? Like it does a few clever things with the, the way it, it sends and modulates and demodulates data. And, and really at the end of the day, what you end up with is a very cost-effective piece of silicon that can transmit small amounts of data over extraordinarily long ranges. We've seen hotspots that in a straight line are getting, you know, over a hundred miles of coverage from a roof, which is crazy, right? Like those are, and you can only do that because you're trading like tiny amounts of data, right? Like we're talking about, we're, me we're measuring in byte. Even thinking of a kilobyte is like out of the question, right? Like we're, we're talking about like tens of bytes at most. But, you know, just to give an example, like if you wanted to send a GPS coordinate with a speed and an altitude, like you can do it in like 11 bytes, right? And so you can actually get a lot done if you're sort of clever about how you do it. And so that's part of what makes Helium work is that, you know, you're using technologies like LoRa that make it possible to build coverage areas, you know, the size of a city 
you know, needing hundreds of hotspots rather than tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, right? Like if you needed hundreds of thousands, like this is not tenable or viable in any way, but needing like, you know, 100, 200, 300 in a city, you can do that. You can find enough like crypto enthusiasts and telco anarchists and like, you know, whatever the, the demographics are to like get a hundred of these stood up in a city. And that's exactly what we've seen, right? Like across across the world, that's that's how it's going. But it is important to like consider that at least the lower part of the network is designed very specifically for like those low power, low data rate kinds of transmissions. And it's not for streaming video or making phone calls or something like that. Although we did just announce yeah. announce stuff in that area too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we'll get to that because I think there's one part in there, just the final bit with Laura is that incentivizing the people to go out and deploy these hotspots, right? You obviously have, you reward someone who is a supplier of bandwidth into the spectrum. So like it's providing a hotspot that people can access, get rewarded in these currency tokens. And at the moment, just for just for reference, the average you know user might be getting one or two or three HNT a day, depending on where they're at. And the HNT price at the moment is about $15 and the device itself might cost four or $500. So you're looking at quite a relatively quick return on capital at the moment. And obviously that's going to go down over time as more and more uh, devices get added to the network, etc. But then on the other side, if you're a consumer of, uh, and you need to put a bike onto the network, for example, you would never even see that. You'd never deal with it as a crypto. You just literally purchase data credits that are set in stone in terms of their price and you bank them like AWS credits in your thing and you just go, hey, I know I'm going to broadcast 11 bytes of data every 10 seconds. That's going to be this. Over the next five years, I'm going to need this amount of data credits so you can purchase that on the market and you know that that's going to be stable in price. And I think that was the kind of geniusness of this system that I saw is that, you know, especially in the crypto world, I think there's a lot of complicated, way more complicated than it needs to be <laughs> for a lot of things that I had seen. And this is just very straightforward. You know, the, the people who are taking the risk in terms of deploying stuff, they get rewarded with something that's a little bit more, you know, there's a floating price for it. But anybody who's using the network, it's very easy and set. And so you buy the data credits and literally it'll work everywhere in the world. So you say, oh, I've got a bike, I'm sending it to Senegal. I know it'll be, it'll cost the same as if I flew it to Argentina, yeah. if I flew it to New Zealand. And I think that that to me is it just provides the scalability to this because configure it once, it works everywhere. And you know that the cost is going to be stable wherever you go. That to me is like a, a kind of a revolution in, in terms of how we think about building something for IoT. Yeah, it's been a, you know, it's one of the more important developments. When we were in raising money in 2018, like one of the, a group that we met with was a crypto hedge fund called Multicoin. And there's two partners there, Tushar and, and Kyle, who really sort of led us down this path to, because the original model was, was very similar to Filecoin and, and other, you know, utility tokens that they, as they described them, where, you know, the currency, there's a singular currency, right? And you use that as both the reward and the, and the way of, of consuming the network. And, you know, the problem with Helium and perhaps with Filecoin and others is that enterprises don't want anything to do with cryptocurrencies, right? In a lot of cases, they literally aren't even allowed to buy them. And, and so that was a problem for us, right? Like the, the fact that there was two problems. One was the sort of regulatory one where, you know, companies didn't want to buy them or couldn't buy them. And then the other was sort of one that you touched on there, which was the sort of volatility of the thing, right? Like part of what makes the supply side work is that there's a speculation in there, right? Like people are speculating on the future value of the Helium network. And that's what, you know, provides HNT its value. And that's what provides the rewards to the operators. But at the same time, that's like devastating for a consumer of the network, right? Like you, you can't, 
be operating a device on the network and have it one day cost, you know, two cents to send the thing and all of a sudden it costs $20 the next day. And that's very reasonably a, a situation that could occur. Like you see cryptocurrencies move 100% in a 24-hour period, which is crazy, right? And, and so yeah. the data credit model was a really interesting one that the multi-coin team introduced us to where, you know, you sort of have a sort of like a stable, they call them stable coins in the crypto world, but you kind of have like a miniature stable coin inside the Helium system. And it's, you know, like an airline mile or something, right? Like one data credit always gets you the right to send 24 bytes on the network. Uh, and it always costs a fraction of a penny. And the only thing that changes is that when you convert HNT into data credits, you might get more or less data credits for that conversion because the value of HNT is changing. That was the sort of clever nature of the system, right? Is that you, you always had this fixed value thing. And so consumers of the network, like guys like Salesforce and Lime and whatever, you know, they just buy data credits with a credit card. Like they don't care about all the other like crypto machinery that happens in the background. And I think again, just sort of the, the same way that we made it easy for consumers to use the hotspot, making it easy for, for companies to use the network was also important, right? Like if we created all this friction where you had to go buy it on a crypto exchange, you just forget it. Like no, one, no one's ever gonna, like you're never gonna do it, right? And so that was, you know, an important, also like an important development and an important idea when we built this. Yeah. So obviously you launched it with LoRaWAN as your sort of the low power thing, but this idea of being able to have anybody add capacity to the network, people have told me, and I think um, you might've even used this an analogy, I think the last time, which is it's yeah. like Airbnb for telco. You know, it's rather than building, you know, go out and build a whole ho hotel chain, you just say, we're gonna provide a platform and if you've got spare capacity, put it on. And what you end up with is the largest hotel chain is not a hotel chain. It's just a platform on which some stuff has been built. And so you've gone out and Helium obviously started with LoRaWAN, but you've just announced this partnership with Freedom Fire to be able to do 5G. And so you're looking to add additional wireless protocols as time goes on. And so do you, can you just quickly talk about the 5G thing and then and then I'm gonna have Horace start digging in about why. The 5G stuff is, is super interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, primarily that we didn't come up with it, right? I mean, the Freedom Fire team you know, has been building open source cellular networks for a little while now. And, you know, that world has always fascinated me. And it, it always seemed like a thing that we should figure out how to do. We just didn't know anything about it or how it works, or we didn't even know what CBRS is, which is sort of the open spectrum that the FCC has made available in the United States for, for running cellular networks. You know, and so FreedomFi has like aspirations to build an extremely large cellular network, but also to proliferate open source cellular technology, like in the industry, right? It's a, it's an extremely like old school industry, like dominated by Ericsson, Nokia, Huawei. You know, their view of the world is that it needs its like Linux moment, right? Like where is the Linux version of those options? And that in their view comes in the form of Magma, which is this open source project that Facebook initially started, now part of the Linux Foundation. And it's like an open source cellular stack, right? I mean, cellular protocols are extraordinarily complicated and extremely difficult to implement. And so to have like an open source stack that people can use uh, is actually a really big deal. And then combined with, you know, finally having some open spectrum, it's actually possible to run a cellular network. And so, I, you know, they discovered Helium at some point in their journey. And I think they view Helium as sort of fuel to deploy open source cellular technology like throughout the world that was fascinating to me because you know that that was sort of came to us right like that wasn't an innovation that we came up with we weren't experts in cellular still are not experts in cellular 
But I think people have seen that the model that we've sort of pioneered here is a way to deploy like wireless technology in general, right? Like the fact that we were focused on LoRaWAN at the start is sort of irrelevant, right? Like if you if you want to deploy a wireless network, Helium is probably the fastest way to proliferate it. And I think that's just awesome. And Airbnb is exactly the right example, right? Like I think everyone scoffed, including me, at the idea of, you know, renting out a house. And now, you know, more stays happen at Airbnb than I think like all the hotel chains combined multiplied by some number, right? And so it's like eclipsed everything. And, and I think that's what will happen with Helium as well. And it will just be obvious that wireless networks should be deployed this way. It just may take a long time for that to materialize. And there are other moats in the way like license spectrum and, you know, regulation and stuff that make it make it difficult. But it's it, it feels inevitable to me. And having the Freedom 5 team sort of like take that approach, I thought was was fantastic and super exciting. Just to clarify as well, so if you're on 5G, the way that it'll work is a telco might, you know, say for example, you've got a Verizon or an AT&T or whatever it is, you will never see again the Helium 5G thing. All you'll see is you go into an area where they need to effectively get Spectrum and they will purchase it off the providers who have put up a 5G thing and effectively an open source roaming arrangement. So it's not that they have to set up a roaming arrangement with every single operator. They just say, I'm going to buy data credits. And then anybody who's on the Helium network who's providing 5G coverage will just use it and will offload it. What I can see is that you'll end up with, you know, stadiums or someone else saying, hey, this is a whole new source of revenue for us. We can put up some infrastructure or someone will come in and say, we can create a whole new revenue stream for you, which is we'll just offload a bunch of stuff. We'll get paid for it and we'll provide that to you. And what it'll mean is that the, the networks themselves end up working really well. But I can also see it as well, people, you know, a lot of the telcos going, we don't want to deploy 5G in every single city. We'll only deploy it in the highly trafficked areas where we know our customers are, but we'll just do roaming arrangements for everywhere else because it's way cheaper. Like, and, and you, you you cited in the announcement that it was sort of $1 per gigabyte versus $5 per gigabyte, you know, and more traditional roaming arrangements. Yeah, I mean, I think those numbers are probably guesses. I mean, I would hope it's a lot cheaper than a dollar, quite honestly, uh, that, that probably sounds high. But I mean, yeah. you know, the, the telco industry has actually gone this way for a long time. It's just sort of hidden to people. I like the example of, I think people have heard of Boingo Wireless, probably because they recognize the Wi-Fi and airports thing. But what most people, including myself, didn't realize about those arrangements was that Boingo actually runs cellular networks in those airports. And so when you go inside SFO, it looks like I'm still on AT&T, my, as you, kind of as you pointed out, it still says AT&T in the corner on, on my phone, but I'm actually roaming onto... Boingo's cellular network and AT&T is paying Boingo for the traffic that gets delivered back to them. And, you know, I found that to be fascinating. And this is another sort of piece of the puzzle that Freedom Fry brought to the table that, that we didn't know about. I mean, we're not in the cellular universe. We didn't understand roaming and offload. But I found that to be fascinating. And I, and I think it happens a lot more than that too. Like the tower companies that are are, are sort of present in the industry also do more than just renting or leasing tower space now. Like they often operate the telecom infrastructure itself and then the carriers pay them for that, right? And they call these things neutral host networks, right? Where gateway sort of sits there or the, the radio sits there. Uh, it can serve multiple different operators, right? And it, it that's sort of an interesting model that's been becoming popular. But as you said, I mean, deploying networks is expensive and hard. And I don't think you could ever go as fast as like a group of rabid consumers, right? Like you just imagine trying to deploy Wi-Fi in a centralized way, right? It would be, it would be nothing compared to to what sort of happened to it. And so, I think there's potential. I mean, there's still you know there's still the licensing and and, and spectrum issues, that, but CBRS definitely goes a long way to sort of helping that in the United States. It's just not prevalent throughout the rest of the world yet. Cool. 
Hey, so Horace, you've been sitting here listening for about 20 minutes. I am very curious. And maybe actually, because I'm not, not entirely sure everybody's necessarily going to know your background. Maybe just, you know, any, any history you want to provide as context for... Yes. So thanks for that introduction. I, I'm going to have to excuse myself for being old because I remember things. And one of the things that I remember is when I started out in my work... I was a young engineer, but I was working for a telecommunications company. And this was a company called GTE, which merged later to become Verizon with, I believe it was AT&T portion of AT&T that was serving the Northeast and they combined to form Verizon as we know today. And, and so my early career was very influenced by this old way of providing network services for landline plus to some degree cellular and not so much in data at the time and one of the things i learned while working in telecom was what i came to call the networking paradox now there are few theories in networking there are some well known that sort of if you're an engineer probably know about uh, shannon's information theory law and sort of how do we measure the throughput of a channel and this goes way back to the 1940s actually in terms of understanding the capacity of a network and by the way a lot of that was based on learning from the old morse code based telegraph all right and there's a lot of questions about how much you can stuff in a channel then came something called metcalf's law in the 70s which was this law of value in the network, that value in the network grows as the number of nodes do, but not just linearly, but actually super logarithmically, n, log, n times log n. And Metcalf's law is also sort of one of the foundations of the internet because alongside with Moore's law, we kind of get to sense network effects. Network effect is a way of describing Metcalf's law. It's like the value of a network grows far more rapidly than the number of nodes in it. But there's a paradox with networking, and I'm going to state it here as a sort of a provocation, as a question, if you will, for you. And that is that no network in the history of the world, given enough time, has ever turned a profit. And I say this provocatively because I don't know if others agree with me on this. But if you study the history of networking, the way it works is you get a lot of money to build an infrastructure. Now, this could be a network of roads, it could be a network of plumbing, it could be irrigation, it could be railroads, it could be canals. You have to raise a ton of money, build this infrastructure, and then you hope to get money back through a toll. Now, again, going all the way back to the Roman times, when the first infrastructures were built 2,000 years ago, perhaps there were others before, I don't know about, maybe the ancients of Mesopotamia also had a network. But you had these networks that were constantly to build, the king would commission them or an emperor, and then you'd have to get the tolls. Now, what happens over time is people become resentful of paying tolls. And they say, why am I paying this when you know there's no service provided? Yes, you're maintaining it to some degree, but these are really expensive tolls. And you end up saying, well, I don't want to pay them. Or some other government comes into power and says, you know what, you've been gouging too long. We shall have to rein you in. So you have this effectively a corrosion or an erosion in the ability to extract value. And again, you've gone deep in the hole. You're trying to recover the money. 
and you end up basically having your hands slapped as you try to do so. And so typically there's a lot of bankruptcy or a lot of consolidation that occurs late in the stage. Now, some people make money early on, which is when the building takes place, right? There's a lot of contractors, there's a lot of electricians, there's a lot of builders who make money in those early years. But again, the company that owns the asset long-term tends to end up being seen as a, let's say, rent seeker. And that's a bad thing. Now, so the paradox is this, and, and this is why, by the way, you see this in evidence all the time. You're, you know, do you really think the cable network is all that valuable when you're having to pay a hundred bucks a month for cable TV and everybody wants to cut that cord? Do you think that the road network is all that good? Because obviously it's costing a huge amount of money to maintain these roads that we have. And people are saying maybe we can do without them. And so, in, and so it goes. And so that initial investment tends to be never paid back, really. And it ends up being subsumed in some kind of a government scheme. And so this is the paradox, as I call it. So given this background in my age problem, as I said, I want to know how Helium solves the network paradox. In other words, is this and a revolution in technology on the scale of, let's say, Metcaps or Shannon's, where we understand far more deeply the value question, the, the economic question, and the incentive, as you very well put, the incentive question of how to maintain a network, which is where people tend to be resentful. So, first of all, has anyone mentioned this to you or or is this something that you've thought about because fundamentally i think about it beyond the build out stage and sort of a longer term question of what is the prospect for a revolution in networking because networking is like i said close to my heart i've seen it and, and you know i've seen the internet growth but also i've seen commoditization which breaks your heart so what's the future going to look like beyond the earliest phases where you are obviously, you know, deeply involved today? And it's a very, very well put question. You know, and it's funny, just sort of like to derail for a second, like it, you're absolutely right about, you know, the Shannon limit is still correct. And, you know, some of the most interesting, like error correction technology was still invented in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, the Voyager code used on that probe is still one of the better ones to use. And, so it's, it's always amazing what was done. I, I often feel like what was done in the 40s and 50s and even earlier is, is just light years ahead of the level of innovation that we have today. So I, I totally agree with you, by the way. And, and I think what you articulated there is, is a much more succinct version of a gut feeling that we had, which was that particularly in IoT, but perhaps in every network, as you pointed out, it is not possible to build it the traditional way. There is just there's simply just not a business to be had. Build it, spending hundreds of millions. Exactly, it's, it's it, it just doesn't exist. It, it's it's it strikes you because you realize that now we're especially in, in the mobility world we're we're facing this infrastructural question. We're being told that, for example, we cannot afford to build new infrastructures. We cannot afford even to maintain them. We cannot afford to redesign them. And all of this hand wringing, even though we're supremely wealthy incredibly wealthy we somehow think that these things are now worth doing and that's that's a judgment being made by people because they don't first of all some costs are obviously too high you know but that's people who know how to gouge and but also there's the sense of lack of value in the infrastructures we don't put a sufficient emotional 
weight on them. And it's tragic in many ways, but it is nonetheless part of the human condition. And this is what the fight, this mm -hmm. is why it's a paradox. It's valuable, you cannot live without it, but you don't want to pay for it, and you're resentful if you do. That is a, a shocking yes. situation. It's, you can also say that about taxes and other things. But this is where I'm asking, you know, yeah. This is the real innovation of cryptocurrency if it gets unlocked properly, right? Like that, that is the true power of the of the beast is is that and i think people band about the word decentralization and they band about like you know lots of other words that are really not true yet but th that's the power here it's like both the power in helium but it's also the power in things like bitcoin and others right is, is that i think for the first time there is sufficient both technological and social material that exists to create like the thing that the thing that blockchains and cryptocurrencies bring for the first time as far as i'm concerned is like a coherence around how to distribute ec economics like that's been the hard part of all of this over time right is that what helium has unlocked is that there's really no value the problem with the paradox you described is that it, it always assumes that there's a singular entity doing all the stuff right when the way you described it right like someone has mm. to raise the money someone has to do the thing someone has to do the rent seeking someone gets slapped down like that's a cycle involving like an ent like a singular entity right and, and that's typically how it goes and eventually gets consolidated and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. what we haven't seen before is what is a version of that that is controlled in a completely decentralized way right where everyone is randomly like has the ability to participate almost in this lottery type scheme to to act as a network operator right like we haven't seen a version of that before right and the helium instantiation of that is like you buy a device and you use resources that you already have available to you, right? You have real estate, you have power, you have internet connectivity, and you use that as a way to like transform in uh, and participate as part of a larger network. Right? That's the to me that's the interesting part, right? And you potentially break the paradox that you're describing that way because there aren't substantial there, there aren't substantial upfront. That's what I'm I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, because the other part it would be like if, what happens if you ended up with the national highways system but everybody owned the like the 500 meters outside their house or something like that and and you got paid for everybody who drove and past so is like a way to like coordinate that economically right like the, the thing that is broken in the other models is that and by the way we saw this very up close and personal and it was it was part of the decision making in our journey was that at helium there was a startup called sigfog was a french company that took the mm. the old approach and still it still exists they took the traditional approach to building an IoT network, right? They said, we're going to go raise six, $700 million worth of funding. And we've got these like huge rack mounted, like access point devices that have to be mounted on a tower or in a data center or something. You know, we're going to build a network the old fashioned way, right? Like we're going to identify all the parts of the country where we need to like stick one of these boxes and never going to make it, right? And I'd say this with all the respect in the world for those guys, because I think they were sort of pioneers in like trying to like build an IoT network, but there's just no chance, right? Like you cannot invest $700 million and then expect a sensor that pays 10 cents a year, you know, to, to pay you back, right? Like it's never going to materialize, it's never going to work, and it's going to succumb to the paradox that Horace is describing. What's different though, is if the upfront cost is actually $100, then there isn't the paradox doesn't exist anymore right because everyone's individual like contribution to the project is a hundred dollars we have the biggest contribution right like we spent several years and tens of millions of dollars like building the underlying technology that that sort of allowed this to exist and i say the biggest in the form of like the most singular large expense right i, I don't mean the biggest in terms of its impact on the network necessarily i think the hosts have the biggest impact there but eventually you know as hotspot prices come down and 
you know, supply increases, we don't think it's unfeasible for a hotspot to cost $100 or less, right? And so the paradox is broken at that point, right? Because anyone can take $100 and like participate in this network and make it large. And that also, that has long tail effects, right? It doesn't only affect the initial building of the network. It means like the, the long-term effect of what is economically sound for a hotspot operator also comes down, right? Like I, I no longer need to seek rent in the multiples of tens of percents or hundreds of percents. It can be tiny because my cost is tiny, right? Like it's all upside for me beyond the first, as you pointed out, like a hotspot host today is like HNT is 1687 right now, right? Like so a, a hotspot host today, like probably gets paid back in like days or weeks or something like that. And I don't think that's sustainable. Mm -hmm. But it's an example of the fact that like, you know, this crypto economic model changes the paradox completely because we, we haven't seen it before. Um, and things like blockchains are, are a way to, to coordinate all these individual parties. And that's really the magic. That's really exactly what I was trying to get at. And I appreciate how you answered. And I, I think that is my assumption going into this conversation is that you have a solution to the paradox where if you were to contrast this model of sort of deep, deep debt followed by hopeful future return, which never materializes, the alternative would be, let's say, the most successful business of all time, which is the iPhone, which is where, where effectively you have a highly profitable business from day one. You have some investment up front, but it's, it's minimal because you're really going to use version one to pay for version two. And why is there a difference between these two models, right? Like like the Verizon versus the iPhone, you know, the, the, these two have emerged as brands, if you will, today. You know, what do people think about the iPhone? They say, awesome, I want the latest version. I live with my iPhone every day and it's, it's the thing that keeps me connected. And what do you think about Verizon? Oh, I hate them. You know, it's cost me so much money. You know, the service is terrible. And you only know about the service when it goes down. You really don't, you see the bill and then you say, so what? So that's an interesting paradigm, isn't it? So by the way, one of the other funny anecdotes is when Apple started with the iPhone early on, a lot of people assumed that it would sell a service because Apple was going to be integrated, right? So they would bundle the phone and the service. They didn't do that. And this was even with Steve Jobs, more or less believing in the integration and the bundling, but they couldn't do it. And, and the good thing too, because they couldn't have gone global if they did, first of all. And secondly, they would have been cursed because, you know, the, the, here they are providing a service which people hate. Uh, and there were problems with it early on anyway. So, but this is where I think the this is what you're, you've sort of broken with your business is the paradox of saying that you need a lot of capital up front and that you feel like there's no reward long term and there's no value from plumbing it's only noticeable when it's broken, when it doesn't work. So that's, I guess, where I've wanted to understand. I also, the next thing, I guess, the question is, as a general business question, is like, how do you see competition in this world? What does it mean to have an advantage competitively as, as you see it? I think it's impossible to keep up with these decentralized models. You cannot compete on the same terms. You just can't, right? Like there can never be a network as big and as cheap. And by the way, whether it's Helium or some future iteration of a protocol that sort of takes Helium and builds upon it or whatever it is, there will never be a way for a centralized entity to do what Helium does, right? Just because it's just, as you described, like it's not possible. And I think the battle on that front is going to be, so for example, the telecoms guys have IoT protocols already, right? They have something called NB IoT. They have something called LTEM, you know, that... 
Helium is by far not the first instantiation of an IoT network. But the problem with all of those things is the economics just don't ever work, right? Like, because as, you, as you've described, the telcos, the Verizons and the AT&Ts of the world actually have to charge a reasonable amount of money to use those services. Otherwise, they can't afford to build them anymore. And, and the problem is I'm trying to build a temperature sensor that reports the temperature once every day. And I want to pay like 10 cents a year for that or something, right? Or maybe a dollar a year if you're, if you're lucky. And those never line up, right? It never works. And, and we watched that occur over years. Uh, you know, maybe luckily, right? Like because we didn't really know what we were doing, it, it afforded us the opportunity to, to observe what everyone else was doing. And we sort of watched that and we watched Sigfox and we watched others and, and just sort of came to the realization that that model was never going to work. And so I, I feel fortunate that we we never pursued that because we, we would have ended up in ruins the same way that everyone else will. The thing that makes it impossible to compete with is that individual cost is so low. Right, so it doesn't really matter what a competitor does, right? Like there's no, there is no way for an AT&T or Verizon to offer an IoT service this cheaply, because it would just ruin them. They would just never do it, right? There's no way to build a network this cheaply, and I, and I think we see it sort of proliferating. And I used Airbnb as an example, and Uber is another example, and like you know they're all flawed in their own ways. Like no one is trying to pretend that those businesses are perfect, but they did show that there's another way of doing the same thing that sort of spreads it out across multiple parties. And that was sort of a fuel for this. And I, I don't think you can compete with it once it gets to a certain scale. Yeah, there's one part about it as well, which I think is a very valid question, which is CBRS works. So this is for the 5G. You've got open access 5G yeah. in the US, but you know, I, I live in New Zealand. I've gone and checked this out. There isn't, an, there isn't a CBRS equivalent. And so that bandwidth that you're using in the US, I would in theory need to bid for it here in New Zealand in order to be able to open up and, and access and so that comes back to that original model which is i in the beginning need to work out how to protect my two billion or five or ten billion dollars worth of investment so i'm going to you know bid for exclusivity of the spectrum in the first place so i can yeah. build out the network and know that i can protect my investment how do you think that this is going to intersect with governments do you think like because that to me feels like the long that's a long slog and it's not exactly like super clear, you know, there'll be open access stuff that you would be able to compete in, but a lot of the kind of more traditional 4G, you know, 3, 4, 5G stuff is probably going to be challenging for you to get into directly. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the sort of, that's the backstop to the whole scam really, is that you have to buy, you have to buy $40 billion worth of spectrum and no, you know, up and comer can afford to do that, right? And, and so that's just like in the medical industry and or the healthcare industry in general and you know, there's always the sort of regulatory moat to fall back on. And, and that's where this ends up, unfortunately. And so you know, good on the FCC for creating CBRS in the first place, but also bad on the FCC for creating the situation where it costs $40 billion to buy some spectrum. And, and, and so it's, you know, it goes both ways. I, I think there are a few things that make me slightly optimistic. I mean, one is there are greenfield countries, right? So there, you know, the US and much of the Western world heavily regulated from a spectrum point of view. There are developing world countries where that's not the case, right? And so part of what I'm hoping to see is that people will take things like helium and develop cellular, you know, networks in or or telecoms networks in like developing world countries where they don't have some of these problems on the regulatory front. The other is, which is by the way, the thing I'm most excited about. I just I just don't know how it's gonna work yet. Mm. The other thing is stuff like Wi-Fi, right? Another way that telecoms operators offload data is using Wi-Fi. And you, you may or may not ever see this, but you know, sometimes you walk near a building and all of a sudden your phone will just jump onto Wi-Fi and you don't exactly know why. That is 
you know, they call it carrier Wi-Fi, and it is an arrangement between whoever is operating the wireless network and the carrier, and they authenticate into the Wi-Fi network using your SIM and you know a bunch of other authentication material. And so you could do that in other countries, right? Like everywhere has 2.4 gigahertz unlicensed, which is nice. And so it's feasible that you could have a version of a hotspot that's like a Wi-Fi access point that broadcasts like a hidden, you know, a hidden Wi-Fi network, like a hidden SSID, and carriers use that to like offload into in the same way that they do here. It's not as optimal, you know, because you don't get phone calls and it's just the experience isn't quite as seamless because there's that sort of, you know, there's that handover process, which can take a few seconds, but it's a way, you know, it, it, and it works and it's sort of international and global that way. And eventually, you know, I would hope it sort of goes like Uber went, right, where there's just so much consumer pressure on the various regulators that they just sort of eventually give in, right? Like I remember when it was illegal to operate an Uber in like Austin, Texas. Now it would just be absurd to imagine that that was true because people were like, how do I get anywhere, right? And so there's, you know, eventually the, the sort of consumer demand forces regulation to change. And Uber sort of pioneered that really with just, we're just going to go in there and do it. And eventually, you know, people will just sort of succumb and they broke up one of the most corrupt, broken industries that existed, right? And so, so I'm optimistic on that front, right? Is that you could force that kind of change the same way. And it will probably come in the form of cellular and it'll probably come for the reasons that Horace was describing with the, with the paradox, right? Is that if people... Everyone does. I can't think of a single person that I know that likes their. Yeah, no, no, and that's totally true. Especially if someone comes along and says, "Look, we can build," you know, if there's a five G equivalent in the US, and all of a sudden people can get five G service for twenty dollars a month or ten dollars a month or something like this, you know, with the amount of data that they need. Or I can totally see that happening. The other part about it, and this is one thing that I've I've had as a as a question from a number of folks, it has been, "What about the risk for backhaul?" So. You know, a lot of ISPs will start having problems when you start flooding your network with heaps of data and you, they can perceive you to be doing commercial stuff. And, you know, I can see the ISPs, especially if they're being threatened, saying we're going to go to war with everybody who has not only a hotspot, but just anything else, you know, like if you want to put your Wi-Fi onto something public or something like that. So I can see there's exciting stuff around like, oh, yeah, well, we'll just go to Starlink as the backhaul. But I don't know if that's necessarily a particularly you know, that's a realistic thing in the long term for everyone. Has that been a question? Has that come up? Is that serious? It comes up every day. I mean, it's one of the, again, it's one of those absurd things. I mean, like the carrier Wi-Fi model that I described to you only works because consumers are unwittingly sharing their Wi-Fi network without knowing it. You know, when you go to Comcast or whatever, and they give you the combined cable modem Wi-Fi access point thing, like they're very incentivized to give you the Wi-Fi access point for for this reason, right? Like, and, and so... I think it would be a war worth waging, I think would be the way I would describe it. And there's a lot of tech, there's yeah. a lot of technology that makes it very, very difficult to do something like block a hotspot. It just becomes hard to do it at scale. And you've got various technologies like Tor and others that you can hide behind. And, you know, yeah. it just, and I know they add latency and there's a lot of technical questions there. But I think if you ever got to that point, I think it goes one of two ways. I mean, one is that I think the ISPs should be keen to work with you because you are another way for them to like monetize the service. The other is that it's just a straight knife fight and you have to like go into like technology mode to evade their detection. And eventually I think it just becomes, again, like if you apply enough pressure, there's enough consumers demanding this and asking why it is that Comcast can share my Wi-Fi network and get paid for it, but I can't. That Mm. just becomes a question that they can't answer and eventually have to sort of succumb to. But it'll take time and, you know, 
I hope to get to that point to some degree, right? Because it means that it's pervasive and large enough that these guys are paying attention and caring. So we get the question. It hasn't been an issue yet. Certainly with IoT, the data is small mm. enough that, that I, yeah, I don't think anyone's yeah. going to care. But you know, when we get to the cellular stuff, I, I expect that there, there'll be some questions. To me, this whole thing is about psychology. And I, I think, of course, there's a lot of technology, but I, I do wonder how the perception will change if the network provision is done by individuals as opposed to companies and whether that that is at the heart of, of this being a completely new way of doing networking. And perhaps, again, the paradox may have been existent because simply it wasn't possible to deliver any infrastructure in history without a centralization right. assumption. Right. I have to think that through, but perhaps we're blind to the fact that there are multiple networks which are decentralized, but we don't recognize them as such. The internet, the internet is, sort of is. I mean, there is some network provision, but, but there's another one I want to put out as a hypothesis, and that might be something like, okay, even if you think about an economy as a network, which is people acting individually, having their own money, decide, making decisions on how to allocate capital, and doing a lot of the free market stuff people do, which is what is called you know, the invisible hand and all these other things, which are like... Those are systems that work pretty darn well, you know, pricing and allocation of time and resources by individuals on a sort of a very small, you know, kind of self-centered sort of way. That network seems to work pretty well. It's a little bit distant from communication networks, but economic networks are very interesting because they work. Not perfectly, but, you know, and no one's... Uh, uh, been a been you know putting as much of a critique on it as we see with something that's centralized and and that's that's my observation i mean for what it's worth i'm intrigued by your approach and the the fact also by the way which i harp on when i talk about micromobility is that a lot of it didn't require a huge r&d budget you didn't have to go invent something in the laboratory work on it for decades and then billions of dollars in order to sort of have this eureka moment at the end. This is more or less taking off the shelf. You even said that, you know, you sort of worked on it and worked on it. And then crypto presented itself. Hey, that's a neat thing. Let's use that, you know, and then apply that technology or apply that idea. And then that makes you stronger. So in, in that sense, you are you are doing all the right things as far as being a disruptor, because you're not trying to build a railroad, as it were. There used to be a phrase, you know. Hmm. The, the one, uh, I remember my question, and it comes it kind of off the back of what Horace was talking about, which is, I look at something like Apple AirTags. So Apple just launched the AirTags business. And then also you've got Amazon Sidewalk who are trying to build the centralized solution off the back of the ring cameras and all that sort of stuff. Again, the uh, Amazon Sidewalk is using LoRaWAN, which is in, installed in all of the ring cameras or Nest, whatever it is. In theory, someone can go build on that, but there's no economic incentive. And I also think as well that there's going to be a lot of risk associated with centralized players, like you say, taking the data that's coming. You know, you, you have to opt out of being on the Apple AirTag network. They don't pay you for it. And yes, it's private and all that sort of stuff, but it's not, it, it, you know, I can see there being a real pushback to anything that happens in that space. Like, why on earth do you get to build this thing and then 
monetize my my data and that's where like crypto i think is so interesting especially with something like what facebook has built where they monetize you and don't pay you anything just give you a free service i think that's where the world is going to change i think so too i, I wrote um, a little twitter and, thread about sidewalk actually the other day which which talks a, lo- a little bit about some of this and you know they, they make it opt out for a reason right like because no one in their right mind would opt into the thing and you know i i think i think the ring products are great by the way mm-hmm. um aside from like the sharing the surveillance info with the police part um but you know they make it disingenuous in terms of when you set it up like they they describe sidewalk as a as a way to know when your camera is not working or something like that right like they they very much try, try and position it as a consumer mm-hmm. benefit and it's just kind of like a no-brainer to click okay but yeah i mean it's you know people are going to figure this out over time i mean one thing that i think is always true is that people are a lot smarter than big corporations give them credit for you know, and when it's when it's blatantly obvious that they are selling products and services on top of you, and you're not getting anything out of that, like no one's going to be happy with that. And and so there's already a lot of fallout from Sidewalk. I expect there to be a lot more. Um, you know, it's one of the great tragedies I think of our time is that no one really seems to care much about privacy. I hope that that changes over time and that people become much more conscious about what they're sharing and who they're sharing it with, and that model of you know the surveillance capitalism model sort of breaks over time. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, like no one's incentivized to like go put their Amazon Echo in a better location or like people on Helium are like erecting 20 foot antennas on top of the tallest building they can find because economically they want to, right? Like they they get to participate Mm -hmm. in a greater way. And that's the magic, right? Like the magic is that everyone is incentivized to try and make themselves more money. And that is the greatest motivator there is in building a network. And I think if you rely on goodwill or you rely on, you know, people just not realizing that they have to turn it off, that's going to work for a while. And it's just going to break eventually, right? Because eventually everyone wants to get paid for providing a service. And so to design a system that incentivizes people to build the biggest network possible, that's the magic, right? And so people in Helium are heavily incentivized to go put up big big antennas or buy more hotspots or create coverage in new areas and again that's a, that is a that is a um you know a, a, a sort of aspect of helium that is only possible as a result of like adopting like decentralization as a strategy and coming up with the right sort of protocol economically that that makes that work and so i'm excited to see where that goes it, it, one thing about Sidewalk that sucks is is that they're not using LoRaWAN. They're they're using LoRa, which is the the hardware, but they've built their own proprietary thing yet again on top of it. So there's now another wireless protocol in in the mixture. So disappointed by that because it's another proprietary thing. Amazon hasn't released much info unless you sort of apply to be a developer in this sort of closed way. But it would have been nice if they at least used LoRaWAN, which was sort of an open standard that everyone else used. But they didn't do that. So be curious to see how that goes. I, I would be disappointed if another proprietary protocol sort of won won the day there. But we don't we don't really see that happen all that often in networking. No. Well, I also just you know good luck to them trying to compete everywhere else in the world. I mean, this is the thing, right? Like Amazon has really good coverage in the US, but it doesn't have everywhere else. And and, and that to me is the sort of geniusness. There's a um, gentleman, Winston Lazar, who, who you know, he, yep. he used to be at Silver Spring Networks. He's brilliant. He writes a bit on Twitter. And he was at Silver Spring Networks. He built, well, he, he was the product manager for their IoT devices for smart cities and said, look, the challenge with all of this stuff is you'd build, we built, you know, Transport for London their wireless network or Glasgow, their wireless network for their all of their streetlights. Yeah. But then they didn't want to open it up. And so everybody ended up with like highly little specialized configurized versions versus like, well, if there was an open access network that one, you build it once and it works everywhere. 
everybody will go and build on that because that's the network yeah. the, the, the dynamic right oh, both of those and i i just think it'll everything will end up defaulting yeah. towards something like helium if it is helium maybe but you know certainly something in that space where it becomes the place that everything and that's gets been built. the same in LoRaWAN, but by the way too is it's just a bunch of private networks and so like now we're, we're sort of seeing the consolidation into helium which is yeah which is nice yeah, yeah, I'm excited to, to see that being built out. Now, hey, look, I'm conscious we're up, we're up against time, but I just want to say thank you so much, Amir, for, for this. It's been a really good chat. And thank you, Horace, for joining uh, and uh, and providing your, your insights and thoughts there. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. This was fun. Yes, thanks again. Awesome.